World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Amid celebrations marking 50 years since humans landed on the moon, we look at the future of space exploration and exploitation. Nation states and billionaires' startups all want to mine celestial resources, but there's no body of law to regulate it. And when Joao Gilberto concocted the musical genre of bossa nova, Brazil was enjoying a time of incredible cultural creativity and exporting it to the world. The era that he came to define stands in sharp contrast to the Brazil of today. First up, though. In April, Volodymyr Zelensky swept to victory in Ukraine's presidential election. It was a curious case of life imitating art. Mr. Zelensky was the comedic star of a show called Servant of the People, which depicted a regular guy swept to the presidency with a message of change. Once in power, Mr. Zelensky wasted no time. In his inaugural speech, he said he would dissolve parliament and hold early elections. The vote will take place on Sunday. On the ballot this time is Mr. Zelensky's namesake, Servant of the People Party, and polls suggest it'll make a strong showing. He needs it to. If he's going to make good on his promises to Ukrainians frustrated with the old guard, some of that old guard must be voted out of parliament. In the Ukrainian system, the president has limited powers. Noah Snyder covers Ukraine for The Economist. Most of the governing powers belong to parliament and the government formed by a coalition in parliament. So despite his victory, President Zelensky has had pretty limited room for maneuver. He's been saddled with essentially the Poroshenko government. His efforts to make progress in terms of lawmaking have been stifled. And so he's been restricted to sort of symbolic steps. And I think he wants to take the real levers of power. But, I mean, can he? What what sort of political influence does he have? I mean, I, I understand he's a good sort of figure for people to focus on, but do you think he can gather the political will he needs? So if the polls are to be believed, his party, Servant of the People, is polling somewhere between 40 and 50 percent. Some even think he might be able to gather a pure majority. Regardless of whether they cross the 50 percent threshold or not, he'll likely have the largest block in parliament and the dominant position in whichever coalition he chooses to form. And in part, it is a reflection of what people have seen in him so far. He's made a series of sort of symbolic steps, things like canceling a military parade and instead paying bonuses to service members or reducing the number of the presidential staff, announcing plans, as he had promised during the campaign, to move the presidential administration from its old imposing Soviet headquarters. These are things that have signaled to voters that he's serious about change. And so far, Ukrainians are choosing to believe. 
But I mean, the, the single biggest thing they want to believe is that undue influence on the government by oligarchs and the like will go away. I mean, does he present a credible chance of that? Exactly. And this is the rub, as always, in Ukraine, where the political system is under the grip of oligarchs. Mr. Zelensky has faced questions about his ties to one oligarch in particular, Igor Kolomoisky, who was the owner of the TV channel on which Mr. Zelensky's comedy shows ran in recent years. When you take a look at the list of candidates for his party, it seems to be a real sort of grab bag of genuine young reformers and political novices looking to make a mark for the first time, old friends and associates from his previous life as an actor, and folks with some questionable ties, including to oligarchs. So the parliamentary list is in some ways a manifestation of Zelensky's desire to be everything to everyone. And the question will be if Mr. Zelensky does manage to gather a parliamentary coalition and form a government, what kinds of laws will he start to push first and how directly will he challenge the oligarchic interests that still largely control Ukraine? So what exactly is he planning to do to address those concerns? His policy platform has been quite heavy on things like introducing more what he calls narodavolia, direct democracy, decentralizing, if you will, more power to the people, removing immunity from deputies, MPs in parliament. So some somewhat populist moves like that. The question of sort of economic policy is a bit fuzzier. He's promised to continue with the steps required under an IMF loan program that's helping to prop up Ukraine's economy even to this day. He's promised to pursue tough anti-corruption measures. But his legislative agenda will really come into focus once Parliament forms. It is a bit of a smorgasbord, something for everyone. And it seems to be working as an electoral strategy. Well, working at least as the polls are concerned anyway. What do you think he intends to do regarding relations with Russia and the, the conflict in eastern Ukraine? This is another obviously major, if not the major, issue for Zelensky and for his presidency. He's taken a, a different approach in certain important ways to Poroshenko. Poroshenko pursued a very outright ethno-nationalist even approach to the conflict. Zelensky has been more willing to talk about and pursue building ties with the people, not necessarily the leadership of, but the people stuck in the Russian-controlled separatist territories in eastern Ukraine. He's been more flexible about the use of language, switching freely between Russian and Ukrainian, Russian being spoken more commonly in the east of the country. And he's already engaged in some direct diplomacy, even with Putin himself. There's a potential prisoner exchange in the works, and that would be certainly a signal of positive movement and perhaps a sign that the two leaders are engaged in a more constructive dialogue than in the past. But at the same time, Zelensky will have to fight off forces domestically who will accuse him of being too nice, as it were, to folks in the East, of getting too engaged with Putin, and that will present a challenge for him going forward. And so, all told, what chances do you give him of overturning public opinion, of ridding the government of undue influence, of stabilizing the economy, of normalizing relations with Russia? What, what odds do you give him of success? In terms of the symbolism, he's already had some big successes. His figure, his person in and of itself, represents a new Ukraine and a post-Soviet generation or a generation that didn't make its name and its money in the murky division of assets after the fall of the Soviet Union. The Ukrainian populace at large is already beginning to have a more rosy outlook about the future, about the direction of the country. The downside is that if he can't fill that shiny new form with the content of governance, 
that could be real disillusionment. And he'll be up against deeply entrenched interests and forces throughout the bureaucracy, throughout the economy, throughout the state who know how to run this system and how to work this system much better than the former comedian turned president. Thank you very much for your time, Noah. Thank you for having me. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Fifty years ago this week, after a few halting steps down a ladder, mankind set foot on the moon for the first time. I'm gonna step off the, limb. the moon visits stopped after 1972, but now people are once again looking to our natural satellite. It's time to go back to the moon, this time to stay. Jeff Bezos is known as the boss of Amazon, but he's also founded Blue Origin, a privately held rocketry firm. We will get to see thousands of future entrepreneurs building a real space industry. Blue Origin and a handful of other companies, including SpaceX from fellow billionaire Elon Musk, want to make the business of space profitable. But there's more than just launch trajectories and food rations to work out. Companies and entrepreneurs want to make money in space, and in order to be able to do that, they need to have the rule of law. Andrew Palmer is The Economist's executive editor. They want to be able to settle disputes. They want property rights. They want certainty. And that's what law gives you. And what existing law is out there? So there's some, but it's international, which means there are all the usual problems of enforcement. But it's also patchy. The big piece of law dates from 1967. It's called the Outer Space Treaty. And it says that space is the province of all mankind. It says that there cannot be appropriation. It says that countries cannot claim sovereignty. But it hasn't been built on since the era of the 60s, the Cold War, when states were basically the only actors out there. And that sets up some interesting gaps when you think about a world in which companies are up there trying to do their thing. So where does this gap in the law become really pointed? Two areas. Well, the first and most pressing is space debris. So there's a lot of, sort of fragments of stuff, basically, space junk floating around the Earth, about 500,000 bits of junk of a certain size that can be tracked by NASA. And all that stuff can cause collisions. It can damage satellites. And so you need laws to make sure that things go into the right orbit, they don't crash into each other. Debris is pressing and needs to get sorted now. There's another area which people worry about, which isn't quite so urgent because it's not yet a live issue, and that's resource extraction. So taking things off asteroids, taking things off the moon, for example, water on the moon, useful for drinking. If you wanted to have a moon base, useful for generating fuel. But you've got to be able to get it out of ice, which sits in these shadowed craters on the moon. You suggest that this isn't the most urgent of, of the space law issues, but people are already thinking pretty hard about resource extraction of various sorts. Yeah, I mean, there have been companies set up that had generated quite a lot of buzz, 
like uh, planetary resources, deep space industries. Those are two of the names that, that got quite a lot of attention. No one quite knows when, if at all, they're going to succeed. It's really hard to do this, right? So technologically, it's really hard. Financially, it needs a lot of capital. So those initial kind of wave of companies, they're not really going anywhere at the moment, certainly not to near-Earth asteroids. But the moon is close. States are heading there. People like Jeff Bezos, who runs Amazon, but also has a rocketry venture on the side, he wants to get there soon. So we know that people are going to go there, and we know that people think of the moon as an environment where you can test living in space for long periods of time. And that's where things like water and the extraction of water from ice become more important. But if it's written in these foundational texts that no one can claim sovereignty, then, then how do you set up a, an, an ice mine? So that's the question. You, you couldn't say, right, this bit of the moon is America's or Britain's. But you can interpret the law to say, I can extract some resources and I have property rights over resources. But people look to Earth as an analogy. So think about the high seas, for example. No nation owns the high seas, but you can go there and you can fish and you can claim property rights over that fish. Then there's another interpretation which says it's illegal. And there's another interpretation which says we could probably do it, but you need a really strict regime to be able to do it. And that analogy is more like the seabed, where on Earth there is a kind of whole regime set up to look at exploring places, to hand out licenses, to be really strict about environmental concerns. So it's a much, much more directive kind of process. And so why not just do that? That, that sounds like a useful analogy. Yeah, so you have to get people to agree to do it. That's the real issue. So there, there was an attempt to do this. There was a treaty called the Moon Agreement, which came into force in 1984, but not enough countries have signed up to it, basically. There's only 18 at the moment. And notably, countries that have an ability to send things up into space, they're not really interested in restricting themselves. What they want to do is just get up there and start mining stuff, if that's what they can do. So places like the States, for example, They've just legislated domestically to say, you can do it. So this all sounds quite messy so far. It is. And you can imagine a scenario where you had two different countries that are in conflict on Earth. Let's say America and China send probes up to the moon and hit on the same bit of the moon that they want to start looking for ice. But there are no rules to determine where you go first, who has precedence. What governs that is the big question. What is the way to do this so as not to have to fight this out in courts or, you know, uh, resolve space clashes? So really what you want are some rules of the road. So you might be able to have an agreement that says, OK, here's how you make a claim to be able to start to extract resources from a certain place on the moon. And this is how we define a safety zone, and so on and so forth. And you could probably get enough countries to agree that, that you stop the worst kind of direct conflicts. But, but you think we've got some time to, to work out the, the details beyond that? We've got a bit of time, um, but lots of people are looking at the moon and outer space, and time will close in on us. We have to sort it out. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Vivo sonhando, sonhando, mil horas sem fim. In 1960s Brazil, bossa nova was the sound of modernity. It was also one of Brazil's most important cultural exports. One of the pioneers of this fusion of samba, jazz, and other musical styles passed away earlier this month. The singer and guitarist João Gilberto was known as the legend at home. Abroad, he was the father of bossa nova. 
he recorded this song, Vivo Soñando, in 1964. It's hard to overstate his influence on the genre. But internationally, many will remember him for one song and one song only. The Girl from Ipanema was first performed by Joao Gilberto in a nightclub in Rio de Janeiro in 1962. Michael Reed is a senior editor at The Economist and writes Bayo, our column on Latin America. And in many ways, it was the zenith of Bossa Nova. Bossa Nova had begun several years earlier in Rio. The Girl from Ipanema was written by Tom Jobim, a prodigiously talented pianist and composer, and Vinicius de Moraes, a diplomat, a drinker, a poet, who wrote the lyrics. And it became popular in Brazil, but it took off around the world. It took off in the United States. Indeed, as happens with many popular songs, it has become a cliché, it's become music. You hear it in supermarkets, which I think would have appalled João Gilberto, who was a perfectionist. But it formed part, at the time, of this moment in Brazil of extraordinary cultural originality, from architecture to football, which seemed to augur a bright future for the country. So dance, samba, so dance, samba. Joao Gilberto, to a large degree, created the soundtrack to that era in the epicenter of Bossa Nova, Rio de Janeiro. But he was born far away, in the state of Bahia. Joao Gilberto was born in a town in the arid backlands of Brazil's northeast. He arrived in Rio de Janeiro in 1950 as a singer in one of the then fashionable vocal ensembles. But his career rather quickly began to go nowhere. He was broke, he was on the verge of a mental breakdown, and he retreated to a kind of internal exile. He spent months closeted with his guitar in a bedroom of the house of one of his sisters. And what he did was to obsessively strip down and rebuild his way of playing the guitar. After all those months, what he came out with was the terse, syncopated rhythm and the complex chords and a gentle, almost spoken singing style that were the marks of Bossa Nova. He went back to Rio, which was in a musical ferment of creativity, and he fell in with a loose fellowship of bohemian, mainly young, mainly middle-class musicians whose habitat was beachside apartments and the nightclubs of Copacabana. And they notably included Tom Jobim and Vinicius de Moraes, who wrote the songs that we identify with Bossa Nova. Tom Jobim identified in Gilberto's guitar-playing style and his way of singing the elements to take Bossa Nova from the studio to the world. The Bossa Nova revolution started with a, a short song called Chega de Saudade, which was later released under the title No More Blues in the US. And it gave its title to an album that sold 500,000 copies in Brazil and conquered the world. 
I think what was revolutionary about it was summed up by Caetano Veloso, a musician from a just slightly later era who is still going strong. And he told The Guardian in 2013 that what was revolutionary about Bossa Nova is that a third world country was creating high art on its own terms and selling that art around the world. He said it remains a dream of what an ideal civilization can create. Bossa Nova coincided with a period of great cultural creativity in the late 1950s. Brazil had a precarious democracy. The president, Juscelino Kubitscheke, was a dashing social democrat who rushed around trying to industrialize and modernize Brazil in many ways. And Bossa Nova chimed with that in its search for a new rhythm, a new beat, a new way of making music. But it went far beyond music. There was a movement called concretism of poets and artists, such as Myra Schendel and Ligia Clark. Architecture, the minimalist palaces of Oscar Niemeyer in Brasilia, the new capital which Kubitschek built in the interior of Brazil. Work on Brasilia started five years ago, and when it's finished, it'll be the most spectacular and daring city of this century. President Kubitschek was confident that Brazil had reached a stage of political maturity that would enable it to develop quickly. But the Bossa Nova era didn't last long. A military coup in 1964 brought the curtain down on it, and in fact, Brazilian popular music had been evolving anyway. Now, if we move forward to today, the atmosphere in Brazil is rather different. Its restored democracy is headed by Jair Bolsonaro. a socially conservative Pentecostalist who's openly nostalgic for military rule. I think one can say that in its sensitivity and its disciplined search for perfection and openness to foreign influence, Bossa Nova was everything that Mr. Bolsonaro's vision of Brazil is not or does not seem to be. That vision is vulgar, hate-filled and nationalistic. João Gilberto had faded into the background some years ago. He was a semi-recluse. He was impoverished. He'd been swindled out of money by record producers. And he died on July the 6th, aged 88. He had lived to see a much darker presence than that glittering Bossa Nova era. But his music lives on and is still appreciated by connoisseurs around the world. That was Michael Reed on Joao Gilberto. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. 
It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.